Good morning. Uh, if you have, thank you. If you have your Bibles with you, open to uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this is uh, an amazing time for us as a church. We've been in this gospel since just before Christmas, and today we're continuing in this incredible story uh, that God has uh, written through the Holy Spirit uh, through uh, uh, Luke, a man who we've already designated is a, first of all, he's a skeptic. He was a skeptic, pardon me. He's become a believer in Jesus Christ, probably through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he is previously a pagan, uh, a Greek. He never met Jesus, and, and he went to all the trouble. In the first four verses, he tells you why he's, in fact, writing this particular gospel, is that he has a friend whose name is Theophilus. He's a Roman official of some kind, and, and he wants to disciple this guy. And so he's writing this whole book, including the book of Acts. He writes to Theophilus as well, and he, and he writes it to him because he wants him to have certainty about who Jesus is, about his faith so that he will grow in his faith. So we've been in this, as I said, since before Christmas, and we're moving along. Today we're going to take an, an interesting little, very short passage, so I'm going to read two verses. <laughs> Some of you are going to think, we're going to get out early today. Maybe not. Two verses, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Read them with me, and then I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll dive in. It says, Luke writing, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring Luke. Thank you for uh, encouraging him to take the time to go speak to all the eyewitnesses, including Mary and all of those who were still alive at that time. Uh, Mark and uh, Matthew and John and the other writers of the Gospels, and, and collecting his own orderly account. Lord, we're, we're so grateful that we, we have this account here today, and we're able to read it, and we're able to learn more about Jesus and his amazing ministry and why he came, which is to save us. So we thank you for this. In his worthy name we pray. Amen. So many of you might know that Janice and I were, and Lorraine, were, we were at a conference uh, this week in Vancouver. Um, it's an annual conference now. I think this is the third year. It's called Multiply. Um, it's an amazing uh, conference, and, and it happened again this year. I've said it before. Some of you are going to think this is so repetitive. I say the same thing every time, but uh, honestly, there are so many times when I was at this conference, and I'm sure Janice and Lorraine would agree, that I'm hearing stuff, and I'm being very encouraged by it, and, and, and I'm learning things, and I'm going, I wish they were all here. <laughs> I wish you were there to hear the speakers and hear the testimonies of churches being planted and multiplying. And so that, that Multiply actually came out, the idea for the Multiply Conference came out of our church planting network, C2C, in Canada, um, which we are part of, and we were planted as part of that network. And uh, the idea of it was, well, we were planting lots of churches, and we still are, and, it, and, and, and there was some resistance, believe it or not, by large churches, established churches, uh, well, why, why would you want to leave us and, and take a bunch of people with you and go start a new church? It was, it was kind of an odd thing, and it kind of upset some churches. And so our leadership started to work with some of these large churches, um, and, and not so large sometimes, like 200, 300 people, but also some you know, thousands of people going to their churches and said, well, listen, um, it is about multiplication, isn't it? <laughs> isn't the Christian life about multiplication? And, and so they, they started this conference to kind of educate and, and bring traditional churches who hadn't, you know, been planted maybe 40, 50, 100 years ago and had forgotten that they were a church plant 
Every church that exists was a church plant, right? And so they, they started coming to these conferences. The speakers are awesome, some who have been, been through the, the, the wars of planting and many churches and multiplying. It's really encouraging. And so, but that is the point. That is the point. I mean, it, it's, it's all about having babies, right? And we're very good at that at the Rock Church. And again, many people are awake today, but boy, we take the Word of God literally here, don't we? You know, I always say that. I know it's corny, but I, I still find it funny. We take the Bible literally because you remember what it said in Genesis chapter 1, right? God said, pardon me, oh, what did I, did I go, I missed it. There, I always had, there. He, he said, after he created Adam and Eve, man and woman, male and female, he then commanded them and said, go, be fruitful, multiply, right? Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so there, there was that command actually given to our foremother and forefather, right, to, to be fruitful and multiply. Now, some of us are like, well, that's God being nice to us and wants us to have kids so that we are happy because we have kids and we have a family. And, and I think there might have been a bit of a disconnect there. Uh, God's idea was, no, actually, it's like you're my kids, and I want you to have more of my kids. <laughs> That's why we dedicate babies here at the Rock Church is because we're acknowledging that these are a gift from God. They're His, really. We're all His. And so it's, it's planted in us right at the very beginning that there's this idea that God wants us to multiply. I mean, literally, He wants us to multiply. And then, of course, many, many, many years later, he sends Jesus to save us because we've, we've kind of messed things up. And, well, not kind of, we really messed things up. And he sends Jesus into the world to, to rescue us and bring us back into family relationship with our God and Father. But then what does Jesus do? You guys all know this. I know it's, it's rote for you, but I want to make a point here. Well, well Jesus, when, when he's, he, he's dead, he's buried, He's resurrected, he, and then, then all of a sudden he says to the guys, I'm leaving, right? He ascends and goes back to heaven, but before he does that, he says this to them. You know this. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, he says, go therefore and make babies. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, behold them with you, even to the end of the age. So the question that we have at Multiply is this, what, what happened? There seems to be a gap in our understanding, right? We get the idea that we're supposed to, as married couples, you know, you've got to be married, get married, and we're supposed to have babies. It's a good thing to, to replicate <laughs> and to multiply. We, we get that. But where's this gap in our thinking that as churches we're not to multiply or Making disciples is not the same thing. Well, I think, and, and what we, we found, and, and you see, you'll hear this some, several times, that something like multiply, um, we've learned what we've learned as Christians and as churches here, unfortunately, at church. You know, we've been given the idea that the church is a place that you go to, and it's a pl place where you go and you get things like services and programs, right? And, 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 you know, and then the church becomes kind of like, you know, like, yeah, it's a family, it's a home, but it also becomes a little bit like a, an orphanage for Christians and their kids and the, that world out there. I mean, we hope they'll come. You know, we, we hope they'll show up one day, you know, because we'll put some ads out or a sandwich board or, you know, hello. The idea is we're to multiply. We are to multiply. 
And so some of you might be thinking at this point, asking the question, what's that got to do with that text that you read from Luke? Glenn, pastor, are you just trying to give us a little bit of an update from the conference? Yes. Well, on one hand, it has absolutely nothing to do with the text. And on the other hand, everything. Absolutely everything about the text. So let's see how that might be. Let me put the text back up on screen one more time. Uh, Last week, we left, just for your reference, you can be looking at while I give you a little bit of background here. Um, Last week, we left Jesus in the wilderness. Remember that? He was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, by the devil. Uh, He's there 40 days. He's starving. He's hungry. Um, Satan tempts him three times. And the beauty of that whole passage is there were so many things that we learned last week about that. And you can, of course, hear that on the podcast if you want to. But the big big thing that we learned is, is that, I mean, Jesus was successful where Adam and Eve failed. And that's why he, one of the main reasons why he had to go there. He had to defeat Satan in this way, uh, defeat Satan's temptations. And so it was a beautiful picture. We note, as Luke has repeatedly been showing us, that Jesus is doing everything, everything, including in these verses here today, everything that Jesus does, including going into the wilderness, right? He's baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him physically, and then the Holy Spirit says, here, take my hand. Let's go into the wilderness, and I want you to meet this guy, and he leads him. Not only is he with him, but he leads him into this temptation, but he's with him throughout it. And so we, we know that Jesus, being fully man and fully God, we know that he needed his best friend, the Holy Spirit, just like you and I do and can rely on in this life today in order to help him through these temptations. And so Luke is actually, what I want to show you here today is this. Um, he's going to repeat this. He's full of the power of the Holy Spirit as you see this. Um, but there's a, there's a mistake that we could make. We could assume, reading these two verses, that Luke is actually going on immediately from Jesus coming back from the wilderness, right? We, we could assume that. Actually, he's not. He's not doing that. Uh, it's a little bit different what he's doing. He's covering a period of possibly actually in two verses, three actually, from the last verse that we looked at last week. Uh, verse 13 through to 15, he's actually covering a period of time, omitting, telling us the orderly account of a period of almost one year in the life of Jesus. But it appears like he's going on right after. So we'll need to have a look at this and see what else is going on and then ask, why, why, Luke, did you not record these events, this one year in Jesus' life? Why would you omit that? Because we've already seen that Luke is writing stories about Jesus that no other gospel writer writes, and yet this whole chunk of time he leaves out. So it's really important. Why was it necessary for the orderly account that he's writing for his good friend Theophilus that he tell us all about this? So normally one would include uh, the story that follows, which we're going to see next week. Normally most preachers, if you look at any sermons that are preached on this passage, they start with this and then they immediately go into what we'll see next week. I think if we were to do that, we'd miss something really important. We'd really miss it. So we're going to have to have a look at that. I think it's very interesting that Luke summarizes a year of Jesus' ministry with just two verses. And so why is he doing this? Well, first of all, um, most commentators will tell you that this is a new chapter in the book. Now, our chapters that we see in our books are actually put into the Bible much, much later. They weren't in the original Greek manuscripts. And this is like right in the middle of one of the chapters that the experts have put in. And I'm saying, it's a new chapter. 
It begins a brand new chapter in the life of Jesus and His ministry. And typically in literary form in our world today, what would happen is verses like this, if they are like a turning page, a new chapter, they would be at the end of a chapter, right? They would be the end and then a new chapter would begin. But that's not always the way it works in that day and in Greek literature. And Luke is a Greek and he's a historian, a documentarian, and and he's writing this intentionally this way. He's placing these verses at the beginning of this new chapter to make a very important point, the point of this whole message, which I hope we will see today and in fruition next week, which is great. So in the meantime, he intends to establish his main point by way of contrast. And despite the brevity of these verses, I actually think we're going to see three things, three things today, the place, the purpose, and the praise in those two verses of Jesus' ministry. So this new chapter begins at verse 15, and it's known as the Galilean ministry, or so it would seem. It is turning the page, but the page really doesn't turn until the last verse, few words in verse 15, and then in the verses that we'll see next week. So I want us, first of all, to see this gap of one year, and we'll have a look at it. There are really two regions that Jesus spent all of His ministry time in. One was in the north, which is Galilee, and the other was in the south, which was Judea. And those are the two areas that he spent all of his ministry, his 3.5 years of ministry in. And so the place we see right here in this, this verse, obviously, apparently, it says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And so Luke starts with the place, but then it, this whole Galilean ministry is going to end in chapter 9. I think I have the verse for you on screen. In chapter 9, verse 51, yes. So at the end of his Galilean ministry, he's going to spend all this time. It's going to be a total up in Galilee of about a year and a half. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, dead, buried, and resurrected, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he heads south to Jerusalem for what will be the end of his ministry. But the deal is he's already been there. He's already been there actually a couple of times. And one of those times was right after the wilderness experience and being tempted by the devil. And so Luke omits it. Luke actually omits this whole time in Jesus' life, which is interesting. Um, Matthew and Mark also record the Galilean ministry years, and they also omit this period. they, They have little snippets, little hints of what's been going on at this time. But there is one gospel writer which is the amazing thing about the Gospels, the reason why we have four of them, is because A, they, they show um, different attributes of Jesus, um, king, savior, person, human, man, like us, which is what Luke is doing. Um, but then there's John. And John, uh, in his Gospel, he records actually and gives details about what happens when Jesus comes from the wilderness. And before he actually gets back to Galilee and this pages turned in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, flip over with me to the Gospel of John, and I'm going to highlight verse 29 to begin. You guys, probably everyone knows the Gospel of John, at least the first 14 verses, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God, right? And, and, and He's the light who's come into this world, and then it ends in verse 14 with, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the incarnation coming into this world, was beautiful. But then John goes into the story of John the Baptist, brings us up to date on his ministry of repentance, calling people out to repent. And then we see this in verse 29. It says this, the next day, 
The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in John's gospel, this next day is the day after the wilderness. This is the day after Jesus has been tempted for 40 days by the devil. You see, Jesus has already been to see John the Baptist, and he's been baptized, and then the Holy Spirit, right? You got that? Okay. Just want to get you into the context, into the time frame, so we can follow this, because it's amazing what the Holy Spirit has done, the way he's written this. So it follows the day um, when men also from Jerusalem have come out to see John the Baptist. Um, The day before, in the reading of John, men have come out from Jerusalem, religious types, the the leaders. They've heard about his uh, baptism of repentance, but it's also quite likely that they've heard that apparently some guy has come out and John has baptized him, and the word is he's the Messiah. And so they've come out. The first thing they're doing is they're, they're asking John, well, wait a second, are you, are you him? Are you the Messiah? And John's like, no, no, no. I, I, I don't, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, right? Those are John's words to them. He denies it. But then on this next day, he sees Jesus walking towards him, and he, 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 he um, describes him by the title that he often uses for Jesus, the Lamb of God. And he points to him and acknowledges that he's there. His testimony is made very clear a few verses later when he speaks, look at this, in the past tense. In John 33 and 34, he says this, chapter 1, I myself did not know him. In other words, I didn't recognize him. I mean, I knew him as a, as a young boy because he was my cousin, right? But I haven't seen him in like 14, 15 years, and now he's 30 years old and he's a grown man. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John had, seen, had had a vision from God, from the Holy Spirit, a prophecy of this is how you're going to know it's him. And now look at the past tense. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And John says, that's him. He points to Jesus right there on that day and says, that's him. It then goes on to say this, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. So, we've got to see this. John, J- Jesus is baptized, goes off to the wilderness for 40 days, further into the wilderness, because John the Baptist is in the wilderness too, right? Further into the wilderness. And, and then he comes back one day, and, and these religious guys are there, and he's acknowledging the Lamb of God over there. And then the next day, Jesus is still there. So, he's hanging around the baptism of repentance of John the Baptist, which is really interesting. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So this is interesting. This is right after the wilderness experience, and Jesus is hanging around the baptism of John the Baptist, and he starts drawing disciples. Some disciples start to follow him. Two of John's disciples leave. Their names, Andrew and Cephas, Simon. And this is how it actually went down. Andrew first starts following Jesus, and he runs to find his brother, Simon, and he brings Simon to Jesus, right? He brings him to him, 
And it's quite interesting. As they walk up to Jesus, this is amazing. They walk up to Jesus. Andrew's bringing them. Jesus hasn't really met them. John the Baptist has told them he's the Lamb of God, and they start to follow Jesus. And then Jesus, seeing Simon walk toward him, says this, you are Simon, and your father's name is John. You shall be called Cephas. That's an Aramaic word, which means Peter. Did you see it? Did you see what just happened here? We, we can reread this Scripture. I, I do, anyway. Maybe you do, too, sometimes. You read the Scripture and you just fly by these things, right? We can just miss what's going on here. Things happen so fast. Jesus has not met these men, but He knows Simon. He knows Simon's father. <laughs> and, and He's telling them, he's, he's, your name is Simon, your father's name is John, so he knows present, he knows past, and, and he, he's also going to tell, he tells him now, you're, I'm changing your name. Why? Because your new name is going to mean Petros in the Greek, which means rock, because you're going to testify in the future that I am the Christ. What does this mean about Jesus? Um, it means he's all-knowing. It means the word is omniscient. This is remarkable. These are the kind of things that are happening. Now, the disciples are seeing this going, who is this guy? How, how can he know my name? How's that possible? He knows my dad, and he's just given me a new name, Petros? I'm, it's a small rock. Jesus is the big rock. But he, he's giving me a new name. This is remarkable. So, so listen, so far in this gap that's going on here this one year, we've, we're just a few days in, but they're important. Jesus returns to John the Baptist. He is affirmed as the Lamb of God by John the Baptist, and he starts calling disciples to follow him. This is important to Luke's context, as you're going to see. And then it goes on in John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, okay, so it's now three days after the wilderness and the temptation. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana, at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So it's just three days in, he's got the word from mom, there's a, you know, not too far away. Well, it's actually a fair walk up to Cana from where they are. Um, and so they head up there, and there's this wedding with his disciples. Now, again, you, you all know the, the story, I hope. It's, it's, it's an amazing event for many reasons. Um, wedding feasts in that day lasted about a week, and so Jesus is actually arriving around the fifth or sixth day. And the first thing of note when he arrives there is, is that, you know, he's got these guys with him, that some disciples are coming with him, but his mother just comes up to him and says, this is kind of odd when you think about it, but mom just comes up to him, Mary comes up to him and goes, there's no wine left. <laughs> like, that's kind of his greeting, right? And that's never a good thing at a wedding. But mom is like, there's no wine. At first, Jesus kind of refuses her request, almost rebukes her a little bit, seems a little... Mean, but it's not mean-spirited. But he, he, he relents, and what he does is he calls a few servants over, and he says to these servants, listen, take, take six 20 to 30-gallon uh, jars, fill them full of water. So they do. And then at that very moment, he says, now pour out wine and take a cup of wine to the master of the house. He tells them to take some wine to the master of the house. And so they do, and the master doesn't know that this was previously water. They do, and the master takes a sip, 
and he's, he's indignant. He's like, he wants to talk to the bridegroom because he's like, what's going on here? Why have you saved the most expensive, most perfect, most amazing wine for the end of the wedding feast? What's going on? Well, in verse 11, it says this, this is the first of the signs. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Hey, (laughs) you take water and turn it into a BC Okanagan VQA, I might think you're pretty special too. That's amazing. What does that show His disciples about Jesus? Something that He would show them many, many, many times in these journeys. What does it show them? He's all-powerful. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. So, on display already, this is happening. Now, you can imagine when these things take place, the wedding, can you imagine how many people who were at the wedding? Because most of Jesus' family came from Nazareth to the wedding in Cana, and and other people are there, and this wine thing that Jesus did, how far do you think the word spread about that? Very far. But this is the first of His signs, it says. That's an important point. Some people will, will claim, and you'll find things that you can find it on Google. You can find it about just about every, anything on Google, usually wrong when it's talking about the Bible. But they, they talk about Jesus having performed all these miracles when He was a teenager and all these things that aren't in the Bible, but, you know, He did it. And no, <laughs> not true. This is the first of the signs. And it shows His omnipotence. I mean, the really amazing thing about this is think about it. He, he created... From water to wine, we, again, we read it and we go, well, it's Jesus. Well, just a second. Like, there's, there's no grapes, right? There's no vines. There's no soil. This means literally He created wine out of nothing. Ex nihilo. In the beginning, God created. That word created is ex nihilo. He's behaving like God. He's doing things that only God can do. Word is spreading. Word is spreading about Jesus. John's gospel continues, filling in this one year with amazing stories, one after the other, about what Jesus did for the next year uh, before He arrives literally back in Galilee. Uh, There's a recording John makes of him going into the temple. You remember that? He goes into the temple, and, and he sees the money changers, and he's indignant. He's angry, and he just ransacks the place. You've turned my Father's house, which should be a house of prayer. He's just indignant. Well, that, that, I'll tell you what, that didn't make him too popular with the religious leaders, but the plebs, you know, they were like, wow, word keeps spreading. Then there's this wonderful story of one of the religious leaders or rulers. Uh, his name is Nicodemus, right? And, and he comes to Jesus praising him, and, and Jesus, Jesus really likes Nicodemus. It might appear in the text in the story about Nicodemus that, that maybe he doesn't at first, but he really does. He, he gives Nicodemus the gospel. He basically is saying, listen, Nicodemus, all of this religion, all of this works things that you're doing here, this won't save you. You need to be born again. Nicodemus is like, how can I do that? How can I be born again? I don't want to go back into my mother's womb and be born again. He doesn't get it at all. It's a beautiful story that that Jesus is pleading with this man to believe him. And then in the middle of pleading with this man to believe him in this year before he actually begins his Galilean ministry, Jesus 
quotes, <laughs> says, the, one of probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible, to Nicodemus, which is important for us to see. He says, For God so loved the world, and you too, Nicodemus, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, sadly, Nicodemus doesn't believe at that time, but he does later. He does later. So now Jesus starts to make His way to Galilee. This is interesting. He starts to make His way to Galilee, and on the way to Galilee, John records this amazing encounter again, encounter again with the woman in Samaria. Remember that story? She comes to him, right? And, and he, he's preaching the good news and the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem. Now he offers forgiveness and salvation to someone who would have been seen as the social outcast of all social outcasts, right? And yet this is being recorded in the gospels that here's a woman who's not Jewish. She's a Samaritan, probably the most hated group of people. Think of Palestinians today by the Jewish people in that day. She's a woman, Right? And she's had multiple husbands. But Jesus shares the gospel with her. And Jesus knows her. He knows her to a T. And this at first freaks her out. But it's a beautiful picture of how much he knows her. And then John records the conclusion of the story when she goes home to her family. It says in John 4, 39... Many Samaritans, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Omniscient. Omniscient. All of her husbands, the exact number. So they asked Jesus to stay with them a few days, which he does, and then we read, after the two days, I love, again, the way in the gospel writers, we're talking history, they place it in time and history, but also, you know, we get days and weeks and we get times given to us. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. So he spends two days with the Samaritans, and it's a few days hike to Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, so he's already prophesying and saying, I'm going to go home. And we're going to see his visit home next Sunday. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came, it says in verse 46, to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the wine, past tense, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. So we don't go, we're not going to go further on to that, but it keeps going in John about all the good things that Jesus is doing, healing the sick. So he's now back in Galilee. The stories about him from the time of the wedding feast have spread far and wide, and this is now where Luke picks up the story. That's the background. That's a year. And there's many, many other things, obviously, that happened in that year. So we're back to our text, our main text to today. Let me read it one more time. And Jesus returned doesn't say from the wilderness, he returned. In the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So as Luke has been repeatedly saying throughout the gospel so far, that every point in Jesus' life, a man who is fully man and fully God, he fully relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So Luke is acknowledging that everything that's been going on, all of this that's been going on, that Jesus has been doing, this, this display of His omniscience and His omnipotence is the fact that, A, He's God, but He's also operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. I think I said this three or four weeks ago. Luke, Luke this, this Greek Gentile pagan who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, never met Jesus physically, but he sure met the Holy Spirit he just talks on and on about the Holy Spirit. This guy was, I think, the first charismatic. Many followed. So this, Luke tells us, is proven by the fact that the news of what he has been doing has spread throughout, look at this, all of the surrounding country. Okay, so he doesn't just turn water into wine in the whole country. No, all of these things is spread. So now just notice at this point now Luke's words in verse 15. He tells us the purpose of Jesus' ministry, doesn't he? Jesus came to preach about the kingdom of God. He came to preach and teach. He's a preacher, first of all. And that's what he's been doing. Everywhere he's been going, sure, he's been performing miracles and turning water into wine because he was asked to by his mother, but it also gave him an opportunity to demonstrate his power, which he wasn't really ready to do, apparently. But he preaches constantly about his father and about the kingdom. He also tells us more about the place, doesn't he? It was throughout Galilee, but it was also, look at this, in their synagogues. So neat. Just a few words tell us so many things. Very, very interesting here. It was where they worshipped. You see that? You'll also notice, I think, therefore, something that Luke is telling us about himself in that one word. Luke is telling us, number one, that Jesus was preaching in Jewish synagogues, so it's always he was preaching to the Jews during all this time, and his disciples that were following him, it was their synagogues, but he's also saying this, I'm not Jewish. In the book of Acts, it's the, you read through the book of Acts, and it's always about them and they, and they're doing this and they're doing that, and then all of a sudden it switches where Luke is now with Paul and with the disciples, and it's like, we, us. Luke is very careful with his words and teaches us a lot about God. So first he uses the word there as in their synagogues. And really, it's amazing that we see this. And that really leads to his key point here today. It leads to the key point. Let's remember who he's writing to. I've been saying it repeatedly. I said it at the beginning of today. He's writing to Theophilus. The man whom he's discipling. He, he's, he's picked a person. He sat down on January 1st, and he put a person's name inside his Bible. Okay, he doesn't have a Bible. On, on a notebook, okay? And, and, and he's, because he's one of the writers. And, and he's praying for this person, and he's writing to this person as much as he can. Whenever he sees them, he's, he's letting them ask questions. He's going and finding witnesses, and he's writing this to his good friend. Why? Because he's discipling this man, a fellow skeptic in Greek who's become a Christian and follower of Jesus, probably through the witness and testimony of Luke. He wants them to have certainty. But look at this. Skeptics have a lot of questions. You ever notice that? <laughs> Skeptics have a lot of questions. Remember a couple of weeks ago I was up at Quest and the, the young people were great, but there were a lot of questions. And I'll tell you what, they were skeptical questions. There were a lot of them. And so they asked questions. So here's the point. Here's the point. What's likely happened here is this. Theophilus has likely asked Luke a question that people still ask to this day of Christians. He's probably sat back and went, okay, wait a second. Like, yeah, no, I believe in Jesus. I, I believe, but there's one thing I really don't get. 
You know, like the whole Old Testament is like you've already shown me how the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus and that he's going to suffer and die on the cross. And, and you know, like you've told me all this and the Old Testament, but answer this one question for me, Luke. Why did his own people reject him? The Messiah had to be Jewish. Why would his own people reject him? This is the page turn. You see, for Luke, all of the stories that happened that John records are, are not getting to the point. Although he wants to make this one critical point, he wants him to see this, that you see this in these words on the screen, right? Everyone was glorifying. Everyone was saying wonderful things. The crowds loved him. Make more water into wine. We'll follow you to the end of the earth if you do that every Friday night. They all loved him. Until a certain point. Until a certain point. This is the page turn. From all of the passages that follow in Luke, these two ver- these, uh, past these two verses, Luke will portray Jesus as rejected. Starting next week. In his hometown. In his home church. He's going to portray him that way. The story will cycle back and forth from what we've already seen. He will be glorified by all. There will be days when people are following him and loving him and, and, and wanting to make him king, right? And then five days later, crucify him, crucify him. It's just a cycle. It keeps happening throughout the whole gospel. It just never stops. And the reason is because eventually if they stick around long enough and they hear him preaching and, and, and that, saying that he is in fact God, which is going to get him in trouble as we're going to see in his hometown next week, that they need to repent of their sins, that he has come for the sick and needy, not the proud and the rich, well, that's going to thin out the crowds. And it does. Listen, I want to close with a couple of thoughts on this. This was probably very hard for the early disciples, don't you think? I mean, the early disciples saw him know them by name without having met them yet, know their father by name, change their name into something that eventually they would literally become, and, and all these miracles and all these things, and, and the, the, the unbelievable preaching and teaching that came out of him, they saw him do everything, including the resurrection. They were eyewitnesses, and that's why they wrote their accounts. But they also saw the fickleness of the crowds. That had to be extremely dis- discouraging, don't you think? Really discouraging. When, when they then went out, you're right, in Acts 2, in the power of the Holy Spirit to start planting churches, things were much better for them, weren't they? Not quite. Did they not experience exactly the same thing that Jesus did? Some people really loved them and really, it was great, it's awesome, yeah, we want to come to your church and, wait a second, you called me a what? A sinner? <laughs> Excuse me? It's the same. They and Jesus are rejected. I think as Christians, we can sometimes get very discouraged, right? Not just in our own walk with Jesus Christ in our life and in this world, um, but also um, when we see good friends, family members, reject faith in Jesus. Reject even coming to faith in Him, let alone having 
apparently come to faith in Him and then walking away. It's very discouraging. So, Luke doesn't want his good friend, Theophilus, to end up this way. That's why he's writing this. He doesn't want him to lack faith or be discouraged, and so he records this account of the life of Jesus so that, look at this, the faith, the seed of faith, pardon me, in him will grow very deep. That, by the way, is what disciple-making is. It's walking with someone continuing to walk with someone, continuing to preach the Word of God to someone, continuing to teach them about Jesus and faith in them, writing letters if necessary, making phone calls, having dinners, sharing Christ, being in community with these people so that their faith, the seeds of faith in them, grow deeper and deeper. That's disciple-making. And you know what? It has a goal. The goal is that they finish well. Actually, that's just part one of the goal. Jeff Bucknam was one of the speakers at uh, uh, Multiply this week, and uh, I've heard Jeff preach on the soils, the parable of the soils before, and of course, in the context of us in the church, but he turned it around for us as pastors and church planters and multipliers. Um, it was really, really good. You know, the, you know this, this particular par- parable, it's about the sower who sows the seeds, and some of the seed falls upon hard, packed ground, and, 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 and some upon rocky ground and thorns and thistles, and, and some falls on the good soil. And his point to, to us as pastors and preachers was, don't be discouraged, right? Don't be discouraged when Three-quarters or more of the people who hear the Word of God, who, who you preach to, who you disciple, who, who you share with at the coffee shop or at work or wherever, never come to faith. Don't be discouraged. Because the good news is, is that there are those who are good soil. And they receive the Word of God. And someone walks with them long enough so that that word goes deep. That seed goes deep into them. And guess what happens? Not only do they finish well, become great disciples of Jesus Christ, guess what happens? What happens with a seed that grows into a plant? It bears what? Fruit. It does what? It multiplies. Let's pray.